We worship you this morning, Lord. We declare together that it's all about you. It's all about you, Jesus. At the center of it all. Sing it. Jesus at the center of it all. Jesus at the center of it all. From beginning to the end, it will always be, it's always been you, Jesus. Jesus, and nothing else matters. Nothing in this world will do. Thank you for having me. Um, Colossians 1 we're going to be looking at this morning, but I just wanted to uh, start by saying Steve describes this as a chubby passage, but it's got a lot of the good kind of fat. Um, so, yesterday was St. Patrick's Day, and maybe that's why you're here at the second service rather than the first, um, celebrating, maybe having a green shamrock shake at McDonald's. Um, according to legend, Patrick used the shamrock to illustrate the Trinity, the three in one to the Irish, and a passage like Colossians 1, 15 to 20 necessitates something like the Trinity, seeing something that, uh, of Christ as creator and some interesting language. Uh, Patrick, historically, was an interesting figure because he was seized. He was kidnapped from his home in Roman Britain in the 5th century by Irish uh, raiders, and these Irish pirates essentially took him to Ireland and enslaved him. And then he escaped. But years later, he felt a call of God to return and evangelize the Irish. And he became known as the apostle uh, of the Irish, or the apostle to the Irish. And of course, yesterday, I'm sure most people completely forgot those origins and the Irish and Irish diaspora throughout North America as they celebrate with their green hats and Guinness beer and Celtic music. Um, they it's largely forgotten the origins of St. Patrick, and they take the saint out of Patrick, I guess. Um, <laughs> But a few years, quite before kids, I should say BC, before children, Kristen and I had the chance with Andrew and Heather to go to uh, uh, New York, and we happened to be there in the St. Paddy's Day Parade, and it was interesting, by like 10 a.m., there's these people completely drunk, completely intoxicated, you know, slurring Danny Boy and singing in the streets, and, um, and I th you know, there the motto could be Guinness is all and in all, and the motto of this series is Christ is all and in all. But, of course, that's a stereotype of the Irish people, but... You know, some stereotypes have a bit of truth to them. But Patrick wrote this very interesting hymn that was discovered in the 10th century and seen as original and traced back to him, often called St. Patrick's Breastplate. Uh, some hymnals actually still include this called I Bind Unto Myself Today, the strong name of the Trinity. Uh, but I Bind Unto Myself Today. But I'd like to read to you one of the most famous stanzas of St. Patrick's Breastplate as our opening prayer. And it goes like this. Christ be with me. Christ within me, Christ behind me, Christ before me, Christ beside me, Christ to win me, Christ to comfort and restore me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ in quiet, Christ in danger, Christ in hearts of all that love me, Christ in mouth of friends and stranger. Amen. Patrick's hymn is this really interesting hymn. It's, it's this Christ-filled vision, and he was heavily influenced by another apostle, the apostle to the Gentiles. And in the two surviving letters that we know that we have of Patrick that are authentic, 
there's numerous quotations from the scriptures and many from Paul, including Colossians. But because over 400 years before Patrick, Paul wrote many letters and he wrote also what many also consider to be a, a hymn, a poem to Christ. And that's our passage this morning, Colossians 1, 15 to 20. And to think of it as a hymn, as a poem is interesting because later in Colossians, in Colossians 3, 16, Paul says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanks, thankfulness in your hearts to God. So it might not be that surprising that in Colossians, he opens up after a greeting and prayer, which you studied already, with a hymn. Some people even think Paul's quoting a very early Christian hymn that the Colossians would know and sing along to. But others, I think, make a much more convincing case that this is Paul's original hymn to Christ, that he composes this and pens this uh, to Christ. And his goal, as he says in Colossians 1.28, is to present everyone mature in Christ. And so, as he hears from Epaphras, because Paul, actually, this would be one of the churches that he never actually visited and started, Epaphras starts it, and as he hears from Epaphras in prison about this young Colossian church being preoccupied with various powers and authorities and angels and some mixture of some type of pagan mystery religion and mysticism and Judaism, different forms of Judaism, Jewish folk religion, he hears all these things that seem to be confusing and distracting the Colossians, and it confuses us today to try to reconstruct what is going on, what is Paul writing about, what's happening in Colossians, because we have a letter which is one side of a conversation. And as some people often compare, it's like listening to, a, listening to someone talk on the phone. If my wife's talking on the phone, sometimes I'm like, who are you talking to? And she's so absorbed in the conversation that I don't know. I don't know, and she doesn't tell me, and I'm, I'm trying to reconstruct. What, what, what? And sometimes if I get the person wrong in the situation, in the context, I'm way off. Oh, that makes sense, right? But we, in a sense, this is what we're doing as we try to read this one side of the conversation as Paul writes to Colossians. But the passage today he doesn't even talk about the Colossians 1, 15 to 20. He doesn't talk about us or we. All of a sudden, he focuses exclusively on Christ. It's quite interesting. Weston gets to apply it next week. <laughs> um, so, but Paul doesn't start correcting possible error. He begins with this poem about Christ. And so whatever they are facing, he sees Christ as the tonic, as the prescription. Right? It's like prescribing healthy healthy eating and diet, right? I mean, it's like, okay, this is what you need, Christ, a bigger vision of Christ. Um, decades ago, J.B. Phillips wrote a very famous book, and I never read it, but the, I always saw the title everywhere, Your God is Too Small. And so when Steve was pressuring me for a, a title, <laughs> I said, how about your Christ is too small? Your Christ is too small. And I think that's what Paul might say to the Colossians, your Christ is too small, and we are hardly different here. Our Christ is is often too small. We shrink them and reduce them. We sometimes privatize them in our language. It's just our personal savior and, you know, just privatize them and reduce them and limit them to our hearts and, well, what, who knows about the universe. But there's these various elements where he's often reduced, shrunk. And then, of course, in our larger culture, there are many Jesuses for sale in the superstore of religious ideas. There is the G Jesus the socialist, Jesus the capitalist, the revolutionary, the hippie, the sage, the environmentalists, all stripes, all types. But all of these are defective. Some might have kernels and aspects of the truth, but they're defective unless we see Paul's vision of how, uh, 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 Paul's vision of Jesus, and we need to see him as Paul presents him here as supreme and sufficient. And he presents him really in three ways, as the creator, the sustainer, and the redeemer in this stunning poem. And 
remember, this is a strict Jewish figure, Paul, who all of a sudden says some things about Christ that would only be said about God, the God of Israel. Some of the songs, and, and, and we were singing this morning, the hymns and the spiritual songs, those would be seen as blasphemous unless what Paul says about Christ is true. And very early, there's a le famous letter in the first century of Pliny writes to the emperor Trajan complaining about these little group of Christians that gather early in the morning and sing hymns to a Christ as to a God. What do I do with these? Asking the emperor, right? That's not part of the emperor worship and the call of the emperor and Caesar. They're, they're singing hymns to Christ as a God. Well, this is Paul very early penning a hymn to Christ. And I, before we look at it, I want to just remind ourselves of one thing. We often forget this. We always say, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ. And we forget that Christ is not his last name. It's not a surname. It's, Paul starts in 1 verse 1. He says, I'm an apostle of Christ Jesus. And then when he's, he talks about the Colossians, he talks about their faith in Christ Jesus. And Christ is a title, just to remember this, that means Messiah. And the Messiah means anointed one. And the anointed one in the Old Testament is the king. The king is the anointed one, and it's the Davidic king, anointed with oil and anointed. So Christ is the anointed one. So Paul often is saying, you're in Messiah Jesus, and in your, in Colossae, but you're in and located in, in, in Messiah Jesus. And so that's an, an important thing to remember, because throughout Colossians, he uses this word over and over and over, Christ, 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 Christ. That Patrick hymn, the breastplate of St. Patrick, I read it, there it is, Christ before me, Christ above me. And over and over. And the last time Steve looked at the previous passage with you, which ends with Paul speaking of the Father rescuing us from the domain of darkness and transferring us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. The kingdom of the Son he loves. And he says, in whom, as soon as he mentions the Son, Paul starts to get all these clauses, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And then he starts, and then we see this, this poem. So, I've got up on the, we'll have it up on the screen for you to take a look at as we look at this um, in the letter. And as, if you notice there, it's kind of small, but so just so you can see the idea that this is a poem, this is a hymn, and this is uh, Douglas Moo's kind of taking it from the, uh, the, the, today's NIV. And, but notice just some of the things that you'll see, you just highlight, and you'll see in the second stanza, you'll see some connections. Just some of the things, and you'll see the first stanza is carefully balanced with the second stanza, and you see all these elements uh, together, and it's very careful. It's symmetrically arranged and in parallel, and there's these echoes and links, and you definitely see that this is no quick email that Paul is sending to Colossae. This is carefully constructed. This hymn, you know, permeates the, the, the letter, and I don't want to spend too much time. Um, I'm, I'm on spring break, and during my regular job, it's like I teach high school English, and uh, so a lot of poetry and these various elements. So I don't want, you know, don't want to bore you with all these elements of poetic, uh, that what Paul is doing. But I, th I think you'll see and be able to appreciate this way as a poem or an ancient hymn to Christ. This is what he says. The Son who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or authorities, sorry, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. 
For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. As you can see from just that, you see how, how, how exalted and elevated this language is. And there's a few places where Paul starts to get very elevated. We think of some of the passages in the New Testament, Philippians 2, another hymn to Christ. Romans 8, when he talks about the love of God. 1 Corinthians 13, this poem to, the, to agape love, where all of a sudden it's just like he starts soaring and it's above the level of everyday, ordinary prose. Because most of the New Testament is written in what's called common Greek, just common Greek, but every once in a while it just soars. The language of the people, and it just elevates because the subject just kind of captures Paul. And, of course, we're not going to spend all the time diagramming, looking at all these clauses. I don't want to bore you with that because this is not a seminary class or a chapter of a Pauline Christology textbook. He knows that this, he's writing something that we read aloud as part of the church's worship, and he expresses it in poetry. I mean, it makes him hymn praise to his Redeemer, as one person says. He begins hymning praise to his Redeemer. He begins to get poetic and eloquent because as he starts thinking about the, the sufficiency and the supremacy of Christ. And this hymn is laid out, and, and all of a sudden just you see, you see examples and traces where he touches on it throughout the letter, but it focuses the Colossians and us on Christ as creator, Christ as sustainer, and Christ as redeemer. And the first stanza is almost like creation, and the second stanza, new creation. And we see how that's how this captured in the poetry of our hymns. As one writer says it, how do, how do we capture Christ, the person of Christ? Our Christology has to become praiseology, has to become praise. And the best way is how we start with all those songs and, and prayer and worship. And, and Paul really becomes uh, poetic in almost a type of hymn, a type of prayer. This is obviously very dense, very layered. Um, Steve is not joking when he uses the word chubby to describe. I mean, this is rich. And... It's not a simple chorus where we repeat the line over and over. I mean, each, each line just adds something so profound. And you, you could easily spend several Sundays on it, but we're going to try to glimpse some of the main notes in this hymn, in this song, this poem about Christ. And the first is, in the first stanza, the first line is, the sun is the image of the invisible God. That is, and you notice it's in square brackets, who, because it just starts with who is, right? But the last time it references the sun, the kingdom of his beloved son. So just ignore some of those square brackets. But... For, for the translators to have added that, added that to help us. The Son is the image of the invisible God. Of course, Paul knows Genesis 1, that human beings are made in the image of God, the image and likeness of God, but here he's saying the Son is the image of God. He is the image of God. Paul knows that our humanity is, is fallen, it's flawed. Our, our sense of, of image bearers of God is something being spoiled and defaced in many ways by sin and selfishness. And in chapter 3 later, he speaks of this, of, of, of a new self, of putting on a new self. Right? Baptism is one of those pictures which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. But a new self being renewed into that image of the creator because it's being marred. And for Paul, it's only Christ that is the unspoiled image of God. And in this sense, right? I mean, for Paul, Christ is the true human, the true human being. And, but he also makes the invisible God known. He reveals God. I mean, John says this, no one has seen God, the only son. He has explained him. He has revealed him. He has made him, you know, clear. And because that's what the Jewish world and the Greco-Roman world, they're asking, how do we see God, right? Where can God be found? Where can God be seen? And Paul's saying, in Christ. John's saying, in Christ. 
For him, it's only in, in Christ that we understand what divinity and humanity, humanity actually mean. Right? And of course, some like, like Arius in the 4th century and Jehovah Witnesses today will say, make much of this text and say, well, Christ is just a created being. He's the firstborn of all creation. And they're going to really latch onto that part of that sentence, the firstborn over all creation or the firstborn of all creation. Um, sometimes we'll see in some of the translations, the prepositions will always change. But I mean, Paul will use so many different ones and prepositions are those little in words, by words, through words. Um, I always show my students I have this knife that was made in Korea and on the package it says, keep knife out of children. <laughs> right? Just uh, these little words matter instead of away from, out of reach. And sometimes I, you know, tease my children that the temptation after, good thing I read the instructions because, you know, um, but, but there's this sense of, you know, Paul will say, in Christ, through Christ, by Christ, for Christ, of Christ. I mean, he'll, he'll, he, these prepositions are very fluid for him. And, but if, even if we take the firstborn of all creation instead of over all creation, sometimes in the Bible, firstborn is literally, is literally meant, literally firstborn. For example, Jesus was Mary's firstborn son, says Luke. Mary brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in a manger. Wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger, right? Brought forth his firstborn son. I am the, literally the firstborn in my family before my brothers and sisters. It's a priority of time. But Paul also uses, in the next stanza, he talks about the firstborn from the dead. So he can use it figuratively in interesting ways. Um, and for him, often it's that Old Testament context and background. If we go some of the pivotal phrases, Exodus 4, God says, Israel is my firstborn son. <laughs> Israel is my firstborn son. Right? And that plague of, with the firstborn is connected to that because they're touching his firstborn son. And in, later in Psalm 89, and Paul would definitely know this, it, it, it says of David and the Davidic king, who is, David is the anointed king, and the anointed one the son, who is, will be the son of David, right? all the Jewish expectations for the Messiah, the son of David. It says of the son of David or the Davidic king, the Messiah, the anointed one, I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. That is likely for Paul what really what's going on here because Jesus is the Christ, the son of David. And he'll say that in other places in Romans, Romans as well. He is the king, Israel's representative. He is God's son. He is the heir. And he has all the rights of the firstborn, the privileges and rights of the firstborn son, which includes here the right to reign. And that's the context here. I mean, right in the context of Colossians 1, Paul speaks of the kingdom of the son of his love that we've been transferred in the kingdom of his son and love. So now he's talking about this king as the firstborn. And why it's, so it speaks here of his priority and rank as firstborn. Why, Paul says it's in the next verse, because or for, in, in, in verse 16, because or for, he is the creator himself. In him, all things were created, or by him, all things were created. All things have been created through him and for him. And so here we see how he, he adds this, he makes this very explicit. Now, it's very interesting in the Jehovah Witnesses translation, they add this word other throughout this passage. For in him, all other things were created. All other things have been created. They keep adding this little word other. And I was talking to a Jehovah Witness, they're making their rounds yesterday, and just asking, can, you know, okay, so that little word there, other, right? Colossians was on my mind. It's, what's what, that little word? Is, is that. Is that, is, is that there? And then they're a little app. They're, they have the they're Greek interlinear. Nope, there's no other. Right on there? I'm like, but they, he said it was added for the sense and the logic. Wow, it's a pretty key word in such a pivotal passage to add other, right? It's not just adding like a, pre, a preposition or changing like if the word is like all and you need the word things to add it because for the sense, 
You know, that's a big difference. Paul knows some Greek words for other. He uses them in many places, in like Galatians 1, where he talks about another gospel, right? That is not another. I mean, he plays off those words. There's another gospel which is not another, right? It's another of a different kind. Okay, so he can use those words. It's not missing. I mean, for him, this is very careful. And he, 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 he you know, for the Jehovah's Witnesses, he is a creature who God uses as an agent to create other things. But Paul, remember, was a monotheistic Jew, zealous for the God of Israel and the law, and raised on the Torah, and it's partly why he persecuted the Christians, the Christ ones, as blasphemers. How, da how, how dare you make some of these claims? How dare you honor a crucified Jew as if he was a god and claim that he is the Messiah? And that he, how, how dare you say this? I mean, this enrages him. But all of a sudden, here he's writing this hymn to Christ. Uh, and whereas once he would have seen this is completely blasphemous. And he's not becoming a polytheist. He's not being, oh, I guess there's another God. Jesus, that Jesus is the second God. Add one. He instead redefines monotheism. What Wright calls Christological monotheism. He redefines it and, and, and defines it and, and almost the definition of the one God around Christ. Because the Jewish Shema, the confession that they would say every day, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Deuteronomy 6.4. And after that, it was, that's where we get those, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and so forth. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. But in Corinthians, in this one stunning passage, Paul reworks that basic confession of faith. And he says, For us, there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. But then there's not a period. He goes, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. He redefines this basic Jewish confession of faith around Christ. And, and it's very revolutionary. That's why, partly why Paul's in chains as he writes this letter. Because many of his fellow Jews were so upset and so scandalized at what he was saying that they tried to stone him and run him out of, out, out of town. They try to catch him on, you know, get, make him run afoul of the authorities, saying he's saying that Jesus is Lord and not Caesar. And, but primarily it's because he identified Jesus of Nazareth not just as the crucified Messiah, which was bad enough, but also as the Lord, the embodiment of Yahweh, Israel's God. And later in, in, in Colossians, of course, he will say in verse 19, when we'll, come back, we'll come back to that, but in 19, verse 19 he says, God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. All his fullness, fullness all, God was pleased. And in case we miss that, I mean, later, and you'll hear this again in 290s, makes it even more explicit. In Christ, all the fullness of the deity dwells in bodily form. Right? You're rejecting Gnostic elements of the body and the physical. It's like, no, no, in all his fullness. I mean, that's language that Paul knew was only applied to the temple, right? God's presence, dwelling, and so forth. And he's saying, no, God. Christ has replaced the temple as a place where God now dwells. I mean, John will put in that, that amazing sentence that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, right? or tabernacle tented among us, that he himself is the new temple, the, the embodiment of Israel's God, of the creator himself. I mean, that's pretty breathtaking, stunning theology. That is a reframe. That's not a small Christ or a mere, Christ, a mere savior. This is a cosmic Christ. And if we don't grasp that, grasp that vision that Paul puts forward at the beginning, then our Christ is too small. But Paul's vision gets even grander because some will see, okay, he met various, various Greek thinkers and others in the day would say, well, God created, but he just kind of left the universe, abandoned it, left it like a, a deist version. And, but no, Paul will say, no, 
No, he is also Christ's creator. He's also the sustainer. At the center of this hymn, at this poem, in verse uh, 17, he says, all things hold together in him, or in him all things hold together. In him all things cohere. That he is the unifying center. As one puts it, he's a kind of divine glue or a spiritual gravity that holds creation together. There's the sense that Paul is thinking in these terms. Mule puts it so nicely in one of his commentaries. He says, he keeps the cosmos from being a chaos. He keeps the cosmos from being a chaos. That he holds it together. That he, in a sense, is the system of the systems. That's the, the basic operating principle, controlling existence. Um, Garland says that he compares it to a, a, like the motherboard of a computer where you have this operating system that makes it work. And no program can run on the computer without interfacing with that system. Right? It, it, it's essential. But, but of course, sometimes those metaphors can lead us in weird ways, and we start think, comparing God to like an Android or Apple, right? and our technological things, and these very inorganic kind of metaphors. This is a person, not a set of physics laws. And as we think of, like, for example, physics laws, of course, the great physicists and cosmologists we all heard this week died, Stephen Hawking. And I read quite a few articles and watched a few uh, programs on the news about him. But one of the things about Hawking, he made many 180 turns in his thinking at various points, but he wanted to find the the scientific theory of everything, the theory of everything. In fact, some of you might have seen the movie called Theory of Everything. But for, for many of these physicists, this is the idea of an ultimate theory, some kind of master theory, some theoretical framework that could explain and link together all aspects, all physical aspects of the universe that just make sense of everything. And, of course, he never found it. That's the, that's the, whole, the whole holy grail, and scientists continue to think. And one of the things he was quoted as saying in one of the, one of the papers that one of his writings, he said, somewhere in the cosmos, perhaps, intelligent life may be watching these lights of ours, aware of what they mean. Somewhere out there, maybe some intelligent, you know, might watch these, maybe aware of what they mean. I mean, it's interesting, these questions, meaning. And for Paul, ah, this intelligent life is embodied in this crucified and resurrected Messiah. (laughs) For Paul, Christ is the theological theory of everything. He is the key to understanding meaning and purpose of the universe. And this purpose has a heart and and a face. And, of course, for Paul, you don't have to be a special genius to know him. You don't have to have a brain like Hawking to understand this. In fact, sometimes that can be an impediment if you're so taken with your own knowledge and wisdom because God has revealed his mystery, which is Christ. He's revealed and made him known. And Hawking would believe, believe that though there might be alien life, some kind of intelligence out there, possibly, he was firm that there was no afterlife. There was no afterlife. That death ended his existence. And Paul, though, encountered a risen and exalted Christ. And that changed his life. He became very certain that he is the firstborn of the dead. Right? In, in, in verse 18, that he is the beginning, the firstborn from the, from the dead. Right? That became very clear to him. That, and this is why he might have the preeminence and be the supremacy and be above all, because that he is the death beater. He is the source of new life and new creation. And in fact, he's the head of a new body, the church. I mean, Paul must have started thinking about this right from the road to Damascus where the Lord said, 
Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? As he's persecuting these little Christ ones, these Christians, these people gathering, worshiping Christ, as, he, as he's person thinking about this relationship between Christ and his church. And um, he began to see this, that he is the source and Lord of the church. He's the source of, of their life. And later in Colossians, so much, he talks about holding fast to the head, right? Staying connected to the head, right? To this Colossian church, because he is the source of their life, but he is the one who embodies resurrection life. In, in John gospel, John's gospel, I am the resurrection and the life, right? This is what he claimed. Um, my dad passed away at the end of January, and Steve was uh, uh, kind enough to help me with the, the funeral, but he had prepared his own sermon notes, and he wanted John 11, the resurrection and the life, right? And as I looked at this phrase again, the firstborn from the dead, he's not going to be the only one. It's like the first fruits, the beginning, the marker of a new age, creation life, and you think about that where Hawking says, no afterlife, compared to Billy Graham, who also recently died and said, my, first, my last breath on earth is my first breath in heaven, <laughs> Right? I mean, there is a very different sense of because you see a Lord of life and a Lord of death, this one who is the, 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 the firstborn from the dead, right? Resurrection life breaking in. I mean, this radically changes everything for Paul. And, but he also sees something very interesting that he had to come and realize that the source of the church's life, I mean, he says, Christ who is your life, Messiah who is your life, is his death, is his death. This interesting, like so often in, in, in Paul, these interesting paradoxes, these tensions, and that life comes through death, that God's peacekeeping mission comes through the death of his son. And through this one who's fully God, fully man, right? And it comes through the scandalous idea of a Roman cross, this instrument of torture and shame and humiliation and a criminal's death. I mean, this is what bothered Paul so much before what the Christ ones were saying, the Christians, that how can you say... The Old Testament says, cursed is everyone that hangs on the tree. How can you say crucified Messiah? That's an oxymoron. That's impossible. That's scandal. And all of a sudden now, he says he's made peace in that final, in that final verse, in verse 19, it says, whether he's, he's, all his fullness dwells in him to, through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through the blood of his cross. Right? It comes down to um, this, this earthly historical reality that this flesh, this bodily form and, and, the, and the life poured out, this bl the blood shed. I mean, these grim references, the cross and blood. We, it, it, the pain, suffering that he enters into this. And, it, and, it's, and it's absolutely through this that life comes. Through this, forgiveness comes. I mean, that is part of what he understands. He understands, as he says in Corinthians, that Christ crucified, Messiah crucified, was a scandal to the Jews and foolishness to the Greeks. But nevertheless, this is a reality that he grasped, and he's willing to be in prison and in jail for this, and it completely turned his life around. But Paul will say, this is how God makes peace. This is how God reconnects us to himself, right? Through Christ's sacrifice, through the blood of his cross. And that the sacrifice for Paul, all that stuff in the Old Testament, the sacrificial system, all that, pointers towards this one sacrifice that makes the forgiveness of sins possible, that initiates the new covenant. I mean, Paul is a Jew. He was so determined, the new, you know, waiting idea of the new covenant, Messiah coming, and, uh, you know, uh, spirit being poured, all these, all these lines, but now he sees it. Okay, the new covenant stands at the heart of the new creation. It's been initiated and inaugurated with this cross. Because for him, what's very interesting is in Colossians, he, he makes it clear that the cross is a sign of his victory. 
I mean, we have this Roman torture instrument on our walls here, and we somehow celebrate it because it's a source of victory, that Christ wins his victory and is proclaimed king when he's lifted up on the cross. In the words of Colossians chapter 2, he says, God disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame, triumphing over them by the cross. Right? But here's the interesting element. Here he is, he's writing this letter, because it sounds so glorious, the triumph of the cross and all these things we're singing and speaking about, and yet sometimes in our daily lives and the daily grind and the various things we deal with, it's like, it doesn't look like it. It doesn't feel like it. Right? As he writes to this small little church in Colossae, modern Turkey, to maybe 25 or 30 people meeting in Philemon's house, it doesn't look this way. And in fact, Philemon himself is having some issues because there's a whole little letter written to Philemon called Philemon, a one-page that goes with Colossians, and about his runaway slave, Onesimus, who's run away and fled off to Rome and met Paul in prison and somehow being converted to Christ, and now Paul's sending him back with Colossians and Philemon and Tychicus, another paper, they've got these little letters, and he's just like, receive him as my own son, he's now your brother in Christ, right? I, you know, and almost implying very heavily, you should set him free, but I want you to do this voluntarily. You owe me, and it's a masterful work where it's very much about the nitty-gritty and practical theology and the outworking of the cross and reconciliation. Because this sounds so grand and lofty, and it is. But Philemon is a great little counterpoint to look at, to understand this. But remember, Paul writes this literally in chains. He says that there's a second to last sentence of the book, remember my chains. We read this hymn, and it's like he's soaring outside the prison walls. And now he says, remember my chains. Because this is not the world he and his friends can see with the naked eye. Nor us. They see local officials giving allegiance to Caesar. They see bullying judges and threatening officers in prison. But now Paul's saying, see the world through eyes of faith. See the cosmos through eyes of faith. See it through the theory of everything. The eye that learned to see the world through the lens of Scripture and of Jesus. See him as the head of the universe and the head of the church. The Lord of both creations. Realize that Christ in you, the hope of glory. There's this hope of glory, right? And this is just a marker of, of what's to come. And that's why he can speak, write, write a hymn in prison. Speak of gratitude, of faith, of hope, of love, because he has a big Christ and a grand theory of everything. And in the words of St. Patrick, Christ before me, Christ above me, Christ within me, or the words of your series, Christ is all and in all, Paul's words. Right? And so the Colossians and us as contemporary Christians, we need to capture that vision because our Christ is too small and insufficient. And Christianity is Christ. It has no meaning apart from Christ. It's absolutely central. And so I want to end with these words from John Stott, who I think pastorally just brings us home with a, with a challenge and some profound words for us to reflect on about our Christ being too small. And he says this, and I'm just going to read this paragraph to you. Away then with our petty, puny, pygmy Jesuses. Away with our Jesus clowns and Jesus pop stars, our political messiahs and revolutionaries. If this is how we think of Christ... No wonder our immaturities persist. If only the veil could be taken from our eyes and we could see Jesus as he is in the fullness of his divine human person and saving work, then we could give him the honor that is due to his name and we would grow into a mature relationship with him. And that's really what Colossians really wants. And so I hope this passage and this hymn will help you reflect on that and maybe different stanzas and lines and verses will echo as you start to think about this cosmic Christ, this, a larger Christ, and that we would be filled with that vision. Let's just close in a brief word of prayer. Our Father, 
help our dim eyes to see Christ as he is and his fullness. We know our vision is far too small and myopic and limited. So help us to, to see him better and clearer. Help us to give him the preeminence and place he deserves in our lives and in, in this world. And by your spirit, help us to see him as the, the, the theological theory of everything, the key. Help us find our purpose and meaning in him and, our, and, and, and draw on his sufficiency and his power. We give you thanks for the gift of your son and for the blood of his cross. And we, uh, we, we thank you in Christ. Jesus, Jesus, you're the From my heart to the heavens, Jesus be the center. It's all about you. Yes, it's all about you. From my heart to the heavens, Jesus be the center. It's all about, all about you. center of your church Jesus be the center of your church and every knee will bow and every tongue shall confess you Jesus I